Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., this is a podcast from Minute Media. Mets acquiring outfielder Tyler Naquin in a trade with the Cincinnati Reds. The trade sent a few minor leaguers, not top 20 prospects, over to Cincinnati. The Mets brought back a minor league pitcher themselves. He'll go to AAA. But the point of this trade is Naquin, who is a corner outfielder and left-handed bat, can mean that Jeff McNeil moves now primarily to second base. What that does is open up third base, I'm told, for Luis Guillorme to share more time with Eduardo Escobar. This is what Billy Epler likes, positional flexibility, options for Buck Showalter, and it shows how much the team values Guillorme in the year he's having because it opens up more at-bats for him by meaning that McNeil is the primary second baseman. All that being said, Epler is still working the phones, looking for high-leverage bullpen help, looking for a designated hitter, talking to the Cubs about Wilson Contreras and David Robertson, talking to the Orioles about Trey Mancini. You know all the big names. This one was a minor trade, but it's the kind of trade that helps fortify a roster as it gets ready for the second half of the season. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, 
July the 31st, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show an Apple Podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan sided podcasting network as well as risingapple.com well in 2022 mlb baseball left is right right is left upside down is right side up and vice versa so why would july 31st no longer be the trade deadline look i've advocated for years to move it to august 15th because of the wild card because truthfully you don't know who's in and uh, out of the race and look that really holds true going into the next 48 hours, actually less than 48 hours. What is a seller? That's really what you know. You start off this show is we are getting full-blown into the Mets addressing what are their needs and getting into the time-to-get-it-done phase. You guys know how we do things here. So, you know, a lot to talk about there. What's a seller? What is considered a seller? Um, you know, I really, to really introduce this show... I think a fan of the show who left a beautiful Apple podcast review. And if you haven't left an Apple podcast review, good, bad, or indifferent, you should because it helps the show grow. Joe underscore rude, I think, really succinctly put in what this show is all about when he wrote how much he enjoys the podcast and how the show is grounded in reality, facts, and common sense. I appreciate that. I don't know if everybody thinks I have all that much common sense, but Joe, I appreciate you saying that. And here's the big part. He likes how I switch between the past, present, and future, which is kind of what our good friend Mark Healy built Gotham Baseball on many, many years ago. So I got to give him credit. He was the really the mind behind that, and I think that's a great concept, and we do it here. And uh, the best part about Joe's review is that he listens to the show while he's walking his dog. And as a dog lover who's listened to numerous shows on numerous walks with multiple different dogs— Uh, I could appreciate that. So, Joe, thanks for introducing the show today. Thanks for listening. And, yeah, I think this is a perfect show where past, present, future. We're going to be talking about the future. Who could potentially be on the Mets post-6 o'clock on Tuesday's deadline? We'll get into where the team is now. A really great place after they filleted the fish. No letdown. No stub your toe when it comes to post-Subway Series letdown in an empty ballpark. Believe it or not, Miami... I think the the now the Marlins have a bunch of guys on the disabled. I can't say disabled list on the injured list. Miami they were they were less plucky in Miami than they were in New York. I think they actually got up on for the crowd in New York when they came to City Field. Again, they're missing a ton of guys, and it did sound like City Field South. So you know that might have helped. And then uh, we are going to get and I've been holding it in the queue uh, a really fun guest because I don't know when as we get into the the heart of the pennant race. We're going to be able to do this segment, but David Baghdad is an author of a great book, A Year in Mudville, the full story of Casey Stengel and the original Mets. And before you roll your eyes, some of you guys who, oh, why do I want to hear about the 62 Mets? It is 60 years now. I know we celebrate history here, and the Mets are trying to do a better job celebrating history. They just retired Keith Hernandez, number 17, and what have you, and whatnot. But um, really, the birth of the Mets... And that season is an interesting story. And David has a, a, a great book, a great project that he's uh, worked on. It's actually a revised edition, and I had a chance to catch up with him. So you'll get a little bit of everything here 
on the Talking Mets podcast. Past, present, future. Thank you, Joe, for the uh, review, and away we go. So that's our uh, uh, that's our intro here to tonight's show. So the next, like I said, the next forty eight to seventy two hours will be defining. What do I mean by that? First, the Mets play the Nats in what I would say their first foray into their version of the Big Three. I always use NBA terms on this show. You guys know that. Now you have Scherzer. You have DeGrom. It'll be interesting. DeGrom talking about in the pregame show today that he's going to return his mechanics somewhere to 2018, 2019. When he had less velocity but was still a dominant pitcher. Maybe not a video game pitcher. Be interesting to see what we get from DeGrom on Tuesday. Bassett will go in the third game. So you're really set up with the Braves playing the Phillies. And the Phillies, without Bryce Harper, playing well. And the Phillies are not going to be, I know they're going into Atlanta, not Philadelphia like last week, but they're not a pushover team. Not like Arizona, not like some of the other second division clubs the Braves have been playing, uh, seems like quite frequently, almost nightly, over the past eight weeks. There's a chance, and it's again, this is another can't stub your toe series. You got uh, pitching advantages in all three. Maybe Juan Soto gets traded. We'll get to that. And... Uh, you know, the Mets could be, maybe, they're four up in the loss column right now. Going into this big five games in four days in New York series with the Braves, they might be, you know, you know, five or six games up in the loss column. That sets them up really well for the weekend because it puts a lot of pressure on the Braves. If they're going to make any kind of significant ground made up, they're going to have to take almost every game. And it's going to be very hard to sweep the Mets at City Field or to win four out of five. So, you know, that's just something to think about. And then there's the Juan Soto part. Yeah, getting Juan Soto ripped out of the Nats lineup and probably Josh Bell who will get ripped out of the lineup at some point, at least after the first game. Uh, that weakens their opponent and probably throws the Nats into some chaos, makes them a little bit of an easier play. But where is Soto headed? The rumor is it's down to the Dodgers, the, the Cardinals, and the Padres. And that's all Mets relevant. I mean, could you imagine Soto with the Dodgers? And what would they give up? I mean, are they going to give up anything off their big league roster? And if they don't, you know, maybe uh, Bellinger goes back. I don't know what the Nats are looking for in the interim. But think about how good that team is with Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, and Soto as their big three. You talk about the Mets' big three pitching, their big three on offense. Soto's a great offensive player. I mean, he does everything you want out of any kind of advanced metric possibly out there. And uh, the Dodgers add him with the star like Betts, with the star like Trey Turner, Gavin Lux in there, Will Smith behind the plate. You have veterans like Justin Turner, and I think Max Muncy, you know, eventually you would think would come back to form on that. I'm just naming a few. Uh, and if they don't give up anybody from their big league roster, could you imagine how scary that is? I mean, and if he goes to San Diego with Tatis Jr. coming back, the possibility if the Mets don't win the division, playing a short series with the Padres, or even if they win the division and they get a bye. Or let's say, hypothetically, they fall into the third slot as a third division-winning team and have to play in the wild-card round. You know, that's a tough—that Padres team that was was plucky against the Mets, both in at home and in City Field, gets two big offensive upgrades with Manny Machado. That's a tough team that has good pitching. Maybe the bullpen's a little shaky, but they have good pitching. And they neutralize the Mets. So the Soto situation, which looks like the Mets and the Yankees are both out, and, you know, that, not a surprise, I think, uh, could still involve the Mets and impact the Mets. So, um, right now, the Mets are entering, like I said, the get-it-done phase. Or as Steve Cohen said on Twitter, go time. 
or as you guys all tweeted at me with your 90s Knicks, because you all know I love the 90s Knicks, I love the NBA, winning time, because the fourth quarter under Pat Riley used to be winning time for the Knicks. That's when they were so well-conditioned that they were able to basically outlast the opposition and wear them down and win the games late. Similar to how really the Mets with their offense are wearing pitchers out. We saw it against the Yankees. We saw it, you know, time and time against the Braves in that series that even when they're not hitting a starting pitcher, they're wearing him out, getting his pitch count out, trying to get into those bullpens. It was actually mentioned on the broadcast. It's a very late 90s Yankees approach. And with Billy Epler's connection to Gene Michael and to the Yankees, it's interesting because we brought that up here on this show before, how more and more this Mets team is resembling in process, I would say, the late 90s Yankees teams. It's very interesting. I'm not saying they're going to win four championships in five years. I'm not saying they have a core four or Hall of Fame level players uh, uh, like a Jeter. Uh, you know, Bernie Williams is not a Hall of Famer, but you know what I'm talking about. Pettit, not a whole, you know, borderline Hall of Famer. Posada, not a Hall of Famer. But all those guys could be in some kind of conversation. But it is interesting to that reference. Maybe you're referencing the HBO series Winning Time. Maybe I'm, you know, missing all that. But, you know, I digress on all, all of this. Um, Billy Epler's task is clear. And, and we all know what it is. He needs to get a right-handed bat to elevate the platoon splits at the DH spot, get another high-leverage reliever, and with Drew Smith out, maybe a second reliever. You got a Trevor May, you got a Nagosik, you got even Zep Pucky now down in AAA coming out of the bullpen. And then the only other option is, do you pounce on a star going into this deadline if they become available? Like Juan Soto, looks like that's not going to happen. Or, you know, Otani's name has come up. I, I just, these deals are too complicated. And Otani might even be more complicated than Soto because you're really dealing a hitter and a pitcher. An elite hitter, well, very good hitter. You know, 120, 125 OPS plus, very good hitter. An elite pitcher, but a pitcher. I mean, I think on both sides, that's a much deeper conversation. Otani's good. I think he could be a tad bit overrated. But the value of those, you know, he's basically killing two birds with one stone there. There's tremendous value, even though he might be a little overrated on both sides. Another conversation for another day. So, you know, away you go. Now, the Mets, and you heard that coming in with the Naquin, the, the clip from the Naquin acquisition. I was confused when they went out and acquired Naquin. When I saw the the Tyler Naquin and, and they got the, the lefty deal, I was like, I don't get it. Why do they need a lefty outfielder who, okay, it seems to be okay defensively, you know, I got it when I started. I said, okay, two things happening. Maybe Nimmo's hurt. Good thing that's not the case. Then I said the next thing is upgrading from Jankowski. I think they like Jankowski's defense and his base running, but Jankowski is basically Billy Hamilton type here. You're using him as a pinch runner and a defensive player, and uh, his bat is, is, is nowhere to be found. So they got a guy that has a live bat, can spell a cannon, can spell Nimmo, the downgrade is not as significant with Jen with like like when Jenkowski was in the lineup, but it really brought to light that the Mets and I'm going to use and you guys could put it on the bingo card. We've used in the past the replace the Mets uh, meme or the replace place the Mets moniker. This is going to be the component Mets, component players, component Mets. That's what we're going to call them now, the component Mets, because I mean. I couldn't be any more wrong. I wasn't crazy about the vocal back trade when I first heard Colin Holderman, who I thought was a really good, young, potentially could have been a high-leverage late uh, game, late uh, inning bullpen arm, a guy that certainly I thought 
could be useful in the bullpen right now. For Volkoback, I'm like, why? This is a guy that was a free agent. Well, as you dive into it, the guy is extremely elite against right-handed pitching. He almost looks like, I mean, is he not your prototypical late 1990s offensive player? Don't you think like he should have an Oakland Athletics uniform on? Or Colorado Rockies uniform on? Like More like a red cell. Let me back it up. An Amer- late 90s American League player. Should belong with the Red Sox or the A's or something. Like You, you just think that. Or maybe he belongs in some kind of like baseball movie. Like, you know, I don't know. It's just crazy on the whole thing. But he is a very he, – he, he works the count. He's good protection for Pete Alonzo. He uh, you know, certainly has power. We haven't seen that yet. And his numbers as a run creator, uh, his production, if you even go back uh, to his uh, time with Seattle against right-handed pitching, is very elite. Very elite against right-handed pitching. So uh, I started to piece it together, and I'm like, well, the Mets have been pretty clear that – they don't want to give up any prospects. They got this whole buyer's remorse with Javi Baez and Pete Crow Armstrong, who I still, like I tweeted out yesterday, has a 270 on base percentage and high. I'm not saying he's having, a, he's having a very good minor league season. He's shown a lot of promise with power, and I know he was always billed as the defensive player when they drafted him. But let's calm down. We can't get crazy about every prospect, first round pick that the Mets trade. It's like it's like you know Jared Kelnick all over again. It sounds like, except that it's not as intense because the Mets are playing well and there isn't this anger towards ownership and an agenda against the current ownership group. So, you know, away you go there with that. So, it looks like the Mets are going to go component level. There's been reports tonight. I came on the air. I'm recording this a little after nine o'clock. That the price is very high for JD Martinez. The Mets, the, the basically the the Red Sox want a top five prospect. Sounds like a Vientos type. They want somebody from the Major League roster. I'm assuming that's a J.D. Davis or a Dom Smith. And they may want cash or some other kind of prospect filler in a deal. If you're not getting back Vasquez, the catcher, and you're just getting back J.D. Martinez, and I don't like these back spasms hearing about, and like I had tweeted about, and I may have even mentioned in our last program, it's kind of the days are blending together. Uh, he hasn't played all that well for about eight weeks. His power has been down all year, and uh, there's a lot of red flags there. Look, I'm not about prospect hugging, but if you're going to get a J.D. Martinez, who has the best resume outside of the Juan Soto Otani names, maybe put Josh Bell in there, but Martinez has a much better resume than Bell. You better make sure you're really getting J.D. Martinez and not just another version of Brandon Drury or Trey Mancini, but paying for the name J.D. Martinez. So, you know, that's something to think about. They have to go out regardless. They could go out if they want to go the route and maybe go and see if they can get a Wilmer Flores or a cheaper price with a Trey Mancini uh, or any kind of right-handed bat. Unless they're saying, you know what, J.D. Davis is the option. Maybe they're going to give J.D. more rope here uh, against left-handed pitching. Or they say, hey, we're going to go with Vientos. You know, Vientos has an OPS over 1,000 in AAA. Uh, you know, maybe he's the the, the right-handed complement of D.H., doesn't have the versatility of a Flores or, um, you know, Trey Mancini. Neither does J.D. Martinez. But right now you're thinking about the bat in that spot. It sounds like any of the catching components, whether they add Christian Vasquez to the J.D. Martinez trade or in a David Robertson trade, you add Wilson Contreras. It sounds like the expense of that is a little bit high now. It also looks like they may be trying to upgrade their offense in that position 
But uh, again, if James McCann is right, and I know he had the the Hammett injury, and he's had all sorts of things going on. He had the oblique. That's what he's just going on a rehab stint down in Binghamton for. If McCann hits, I'm not saying like the 2019 McCann in Chicago, but somewhere, or the tw- certainly not the 2020 pandemic season McCann, somewhere better than last year, but halfway between his 2019 or his White Sox days and, la- and last year, you got, you're fine. You're going to get everything you get from Vivasquez. And, and when you add in the defense and the fact that he knows this staff and the game calling, to me, that's worth any downgrade offensively that, you know, he, uh, that's part of who he is versus a Wilson Contreras. I mean, that's the way it is. I don't like messing around. I've been very concerned about messing around with this rotation. You got DeGrom coming back. You got Carrasco pitching really well. You got Walker pitching very well. Every one of these starters is pitching uh, either normally, like a Scherzer or a Bassett, or some of their best baseball they've pitched in years. I mean, Walker and Carrasco, I could not have asked for more out of those guys. I mean, I'm shocked about Carrasco. I didn't expect anything. I know he had a resume that, that he could do this, but he hasn't done it in so long, you know, since he got sick, since he got the cancer. So it's 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 a surprise, and and for so long we thought as we got closer to this, what do the Mets need? And as we got closer to this, twenty twenty two August second deadline, uh, you know, we thought pitching and starting pitching and names like Montas and Molly and 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 maybe somebody else would come up. Luis Castillo, who just got traded to Seattle, would be the names we'd be talking about, but they're not. It's really a very it's a it's a simple fix. You would think the right-handed bat to help them against left-handed pitching. Maybe some other component players pop up that become available. But really the thing they have to walk away with, the Mets are intent, as all the reports seem to be. Remember what we said about the breadcrumbs. Let's take the breadcrumbs and let's let's get as clear a view as possible. Let's say teams, and you would think if you're out of the race or if you're the Red Sox and, and or the Giants and, and you really feel like, hey, I'm in the race, but I don't believe in my team and I got to get something for these players. But if you don't get what you want, holding on to them at least allows the illusion to market a pennant race to your fan base. Then they're gonna, the prices are not going to come down. But with these analytic front offices, you never know. So you're not re- they, they look at things less emotionally than ever. They don't, they don't really care about the illusion of things and the owners being from financial backgrounds don't really don't really have that human element that I think I always preach where it's important for a baseball team to market the winning to their fans, even in situations with the probability. And we all know the probability of winning. Billy Epler has put out there the best of teams to win is like 17%, 20%. When you're two games, three games out, under 500, fighting for a third wild card spot, it's, it's virtually probably not even a, a percentage point. In the world of fandom, for the average fan, they don't look at things like that. So it'll be interesting. Does that dictate the prices? Does that change things? I think things are going to be very fluid. But it really seems like the Mets are not willing to mortgage their farm system that's improved. We'll see how this draft works out. I don't think they're going to sign the third-round pick. I don't know if it was official. I had that news on this show about a week ago. It's now starting to come out. But... um, it doesn't look like they want to rip it up. 
unless it's a Juan Soto type, and that's not going to happen. And those are complicated deals, and I think that'd be a complicated deal for a team in a pennant race anyway because of the way the Nats were going to make it hard for a team like the Mets. I mean, it's kind of silly not to engage with a National League East team when you're trying to rebuild and you're probably five years away from even being an issue for you, you know, whatever you, you know, with Soto coming back to haunt you in a meaningful way, but sometimes there's not logic in these front offices and, and away you go there. So, uh, they have to go out and get a bullpen arm. That is a must. I, I think Robertson is a must. Are the Cubs going to hold them up for Robertson? Where do the Mets cave? I don't think it's going to cost you a Vientos, but I mean, look, these GMs are going to sit back and see what Billy Epler being tested, working for this owner, what a team having, let's face it, this is the best regular season we've seen the Mets have uh, since 2006, uh, maybe since 1986. I mean, the only team that's been better at this point in the year in the terms of games uh, into the season, not date, games in the season, is the 86 championship team. That says a lot how much impact this new GM, this this manager has had, that this group gelled and came together in a way without really going through as a group some of the innocent climb and 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 core building that the 80s teams went through before they got to this point. So they've really easy pass lane their way into essentially a pennant race and, a, and as, as a World Series contender. I mean, when you look at the National League, you I mean, anybody could beat the Mets in a short series. You know that. But right now, the team that uh, I think is clearly better than them, and I don't think it's by much, is the Dodgers. Put Soto in the mix. May change that a little bit. The Braves, I think, are different but very but very even because their strengths and weaknesses are a little bit different. But when you add up the sum of the parts, they're about the same. So, you know, there's a golden opportunity here for Mets to do something special. Do I want Mark Vientos to stand in the way? No, I don't. But I also know that, and I and, and I think that what the Mets situation is, is a compromised back spasm J.D. Martinez worth that package? The answer is no. Look at the numbers the last eight weeks. Am I willing to give up a top five prospect for Trey Mancini? I don't know about that. I mean, now that you got Vogel back, and even Naquin, I was impressed with his at-bats in, in, in the series in Miami. Your core players are healthy. Knock on a lot of wood over here. Um, there's not much you can do at the deadline. There's no haul you could give up that can mitigate an injury to one of your big pitchers. But the bullpen to me, right now, the Mets have to figure out three outs. So you want to just do this mathematically? You've got arguably the MVP of the, of the team in the ninth inning in Diaz. That's how good he's been. I mean, that inning on Friday, the nearly immaculate inning, that Gelbs and Darling almost called. I mean, that's the cherry on top of, of, of this is what a closer is all about. This is why you got Edwin Diaz. I'm not going to get into the trade anymore. You've heard me talk about it a thousand times. So you've got the three outs, maybe a fourth out in the postseason. I don't know if he could do it every night. Figure it out. You've got at least the first 18 outs figured out with all your starters. Maybe a Scherzer gets you. Tw- uh, 21 outs, a seventh inning. I don't think DeGrom gets it for you. I don't think Bassett gets you the 21 outs. I certainly don't think Walker. And I, you know, Carrasco's interesting because he's, he, he if he's on and you know he's going to be on because once he gets past the order, if he's bad, he's going to be bad right away. He's going to be bad from the jump. He might get you 21 outs. I don't know if they would trust him the third time around the order in a postseason game. 
I think you could trust in the seventh inning, Adovino. Lugo's coming around. I'm still not sure. I, I don't want to count on Trevor May uh, and anybody else over there. Um, you know, Tommy Hunter is not that high leverage. So really right now it's that eighth inning. It's those three outs in the eighth inning that you need to figure out. And, you know, that could be out of Vino with some of those outs. That could be Lugo. But I really would like another option, a high leverage option. And I hear that with Chafin and the Tigers, the Tigers' price is high. I mean, everybody's prices are high here on Sunday at 10 o'clock, two days before the deadline, day and a half before the deadline. Let's, let's talk at 3 o'clock, 1 o'clock on Tuesday. When either you're going to hold on to this asset and get nothing, maybe some of these guys like a J.D. Martinez would get your draft pick, or you're staring down the barrel as the way to get those draft picks is the qualifying offer, which some of these guys could take. So things will change. This is a game of, and I think it's been talked about in the media, a game of chicken. But a lot, that's really what this comes down to. The right-handed bat, I think that if they don't wind up getting it from outside the organization— I could live with J.D. I could maybe live with Vientos. I know Alvarez had another home run today. Maybe his name comes up in conversation as you get into September if they're not getting a solution from those two guys. But the bullpen I wouldn't mess around with. I don't think Trevor May is a guy that with a shoulder issue that I can say is the guy you signed last year that was supposed to be your eighth inning guy that could strike out 11-12 per nine and be a backup closer. Because that's who he was last year, and he was pretty good at it, but he was dicey at times. He wasn't the dominant pitcher you thought you were getting, and he's home run prone. I think a Robertson is a guy. He has New York pedigree. He has closing experience. He's closed here in this town. He's closed at a high level. To me, you pay a little bit for that. I'm not saying give up Vientos, but you got to be able to give up a package that entices the Cubs enough to send him over. Now, if they're making Wilson Contreras part of that, a, a prerequisite, and I hear the Padres are interested in him, and they have some prospects. You know, it's possible that it's not going to matter. Uh, you know, is there a Steve Cohen tax on trades that is going around the league? We don't know. Not the Steve Cohen tax for the $300 million payroll. I'm talking about the Steve Cohen tax where if I'm going to trade my asset to you, you're going to have to pay more because I don't want your owner to win. I don't know about that. But that could be in play. So buckle up. Sit back. I'm not going to sit here and speculate. This show, like I said the other day, this show could go stale the minute it goes on uh, the Apple, you know, gets out there in the in the blogosphere. The minute it gets on Apple Podcasts. But what I do know, it's going to be an interesting day and a half. I'm not so much into the MLB trade rumors and refreshing like I used to be. I think right now you just got to sit back. But it's very clear what the Mets need. But I think they're going to go the component route with a, a bullpen arm. And that's why I call them the component match. You saw them today. Almost 20 hits, and it's a lot of bink here, boom here, double here, move the runner over here, productive out there. And you look up, and they beat a quality pitcher in Pablo Lopez. They torched a quality pitcher in Pablo Lopez. Really? I mean, uh, you know, it, <laughs> no, nothing more, nothing more than that. Uh, it's exciting to see. And, you know, the next... The next three days with the Nats series and the Mets could fatten up there, the trade deadline, the Braves playing a little bit of a tougher opponent uh, in the Phillies, the Mets could be in a really, 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 with the right moves made at the deadline, with the with staying on, on, on point by not stubbing the toe with the Nats. I mean, they could, they could go perfect this road trip. I thought they made, you know, with Alcantara and Miami, that's always a place where I figured they'd lose at least one game. You know, now they're facing a, a washed-up uh, veteran, and Annabelle Sanchez, a guy that might lose 20 games, and Patrick Corbin. 
and a guy that we have known nothing about in the middle series. But the Grom is going, so there might be some juice in that. So anyway, let's take a quick break. We're going to take a step back from the deadline talk, and I want to give you a chance to take a blow and enjoy yourself. The Mets are 60 years old, and their initial season is the poster child of mediocrity. You know, 62 Mets bad. A couple of years back when the Mets played like 300 baseball in June and had a swoon, I think it was during the 2018 season, we called it 62 Mets level bad. When the bullpens have been bad over the last few years, 62 levels Mets bad bullpens did the men. So we use that as kind of a moniker to describe mediocrity or really, really the worst level of play that you can imagine. Now, winning is, is, is a different situation now. Teams are applauded for losing. Teams are applauded for being bad for a while. The process, going back to the NBA and the 76ers and everything. You know, fans uh, are ready to throw the towel in because they're more interested in building farm systems. We all know the marketing scams with the GMs and everything. I've talked about that for years and years, and that's actually starting to make its way into the mainstream media. But the 62 Mets were built. It was kind of a, it was born from obviously the Dodgers and the Giants. And then there was this near league that came into, almost came into existence that was going to challenge the uh, professional baseball, like the ABA challenged the NBA. Didn't happen, but it pushed the Mets more into existence. You'll hear about that. And then they put this team together that had some household names, but they turn out to be really, really bad. But when you peel the onion on the 62 Mets, there's a lot of little interesting sidebars, and they were bad, but they could have not necessarily been as bad as as they turned out to be because they lost a lot of close games. They had some characters on that team that go down in Mets history. And Casey Stengel, for all the criticisms of his later 10 years with the Yankees and certainly how bad he was with the Mets, he was an important figure in Mets history. And his legacy continues on as he goes to Billy Martin and then Billy Martin into Buck Showalter. And now Buck is at the helm of this Mets team that potentially is trying to make history and break a World Series drought, and we'll see how that goes as we go deeper into the season. So David Baghdad is the author of a book. Uh, David wrote a book, a uh, great book, by the way. It's been um, it's been uh, uh, revised. It's a revised edition. A Year in Mudville, the full story of Casey Stengel and the original Mets. So let's go into the time warp. Let's look at some Mets history. 60 years ago, the Mets were born. They were bad. Why were they bad? How were they born? And were they as bad as we think? Or could we glean some kind of positivity from that season? David Baghdad and myself will talk about that and more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. We're back and joining me. Really happy to have him on the show. Uh, David Baghdad, a year in Mudville and oral history of Casey Stengel and the original Mets. And here's the thing. The Mets are 60 years old. We're not talking about it. Historic Mets season. Let's hope it continues here with Buck Walter <laughs> and the current Mets. But the Mets are almost eligible for Social Security, Dave. I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I, 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 it kind of struck me as I, was, I came across your work 
Welcome to the program, by the way. Oh, thank you. 60 years. I mean, I started watching the Mets in 1987. They were 25 years old. They had the the anniversary in 86. And now they're 60. And I'm like, I'm 45. I'm like, man, I'm getting old here. This is crazy. So (laughs) 60 years old. I mean, welcome to the show. and, And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So... The 62 Mets, there has been other works. Jimmy Breslin, can't anybody here play this game? There's been the tales of the 62 Mets. Why the 62 Mets? What made you get into this, uh, really a pretty thorough history, oral history here of of that team and that season? Well, it started, I think the first inklings were when I was a kid. I was, you know, a pretty standard baseball nerd. And when I get into something, I get into it whole hog. So when I got into baseball, I didn't just need to know what was going on with my team at the time or with the league, but I had to know all the stats. And so I was that kid, you know, Hey, ask him what Bill Madlock's batting average is. I'll bet he'll know. (laughs) You know, and that's right. But then I also had to look backwards and find out where this great thing called baseball came from. And I remember reading about this team that was supposed to have been the worst baseball team of all time. And, you know, when you're 9, 10, 11 years old, you read things like the manager fell asleep on the bench. What? They had a utility infielder who made 32 errors. Their best player was, was their best hitter was 35 years old. Their best pitcher had an ERA of 440. What? And that led me into reading a couple of Stengel biographies and I quickly realized my favorite parts of those were the when he was with the Mets. And, you know, just on and on, reading little snippets here, reading little snippets there. And then I read a fantastic 30th anniversary piece in 1992 written by Steve Russian in Sports Illustrated. And it was something that I just kind of kept coming back to. I wanted to learn more. And I discovered that there was no really comprehensive book written just about the 1962 Mets. So it was suggested to me, well, then why don't you write one? Well, okay. That was 20 years ago. I started on it in 2002. The first version came out in 2010. And then about six years ago, I started working on a very much of an updated version. And that's what we have here now. The revised edition. Revised edition. It's great stuff. I had a chance to, you know, uh, chrome through it and, and it's really good stuff. And um, you mentioned Casey Stengel. And what's interesting is that if you, and I'm sure you did this, when you research Casey's final years with the Yankees, look, his coaching tree is still alive. Buck Showalter, who is a Billy <laughs> Martin disciple, and Billy, who's a Casey disciple, and whoever comes out of this Buck coaching staff, I mean, Casey's tree, tree is still alive. It's amazing. It is. And, but Casey was controversial at the end of his Yankee years. Art Dittmer over Whitey Ford in a World Series and that mm-hmm. losing that World Series before the great 61 season the year after. Um, it's interesting looking back. Was he the right fit for this team? We know the comedy of it. We know the name. But it really, it's really not the kind of manager that could take a team and build it and grow and get it to where it was like Gil Hodges did a few years later. Well, it's interesting that you put it that way because there's, um, there's a couple of schools of thought on that when he was with the Yankees still in his last few years there there was uh, an increasingly obvious sentiment that the Yankees brass was really hoping that he would 
you know, shuffle off somewhere and enjoy a, a well-deserved retirement. And then when that didn't happen and they fired him and here comes this new team that has really no players, no recognition. They're building this thing up from absolutely nothing, you know, from, from literally a hole in the ground and they need some way of attracting attention to this team. And while there were still a lot of giants and Dodgers holdovers from when those teams left at the end of the 1957 season, it was not a given that those fans were going to come back, that they were going to support this new team that was pretty much guaranteed to be bad. So they needed a way of getting attention. They needed a way of getting newspaper column inches. They needed a way of getting national focus put on this fledgling team. So I think in that respect, he absolutely was the right guy. And he completely understood his role in that regard. One of the first things he said upon becoming manager of the Mets was, I may be able to sell tickets with my face. <laughs> and and he certainly did do that. Now, you raise a, a really interesting question. Was he the right guy for this team full of over-the-hill veterans and unproven youngsters? Well, the players who have spoken about him almost unanimously um, from those early years with the Mets and in 62 in particular, they were almost unanimous in their praise for him, for his knowledge of the game, for his way of dealing with the team, of dealing with the media. Now, there were a few exceptions, but on the whole, the, the feedback from those guys was really popular. And if you talk to some of them, some of the guys on that team down today, they still acknowledge how important he was for the Mets in general and for them personally. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned the media. And if you watch the Billy Crystal movie, 61 with the asterisk, you see mm-hmm. a, a, a shark media, the media that to a certain degree <laughs> we see in New York today, 62 Mets. And you write about the media in the book, the media adore. I mean, Jimmy Breslin wrote a book about them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're bad. They're historically bad. What they did is so hard. That's why when people say, going into a season, this team is going to be 62 Mets bad. Like, even if you had a triple-A team out there, it's hard to lose 120 games when you're (laughs) a professional baseball player. But they're not snarky about it. It's interesting. The media embraced this team, and it's forgotten, I think, unfortunately, 60-year anniversary, the Mets probably should do more. Maybe old-timers day is part of that. But they've never, other than the, the, the pall over the Mets of lovable losers, which I think gets old after a while in some cases, the 62 Mets are not in those shark-infested waters like you would have mm-hmm. expected the New York media to have, especially during those times. Well, yeah, they were really, the Mets got really, really lucky in a number of respects. First of all, there was the sheer talent of the press corps that was around them, guys like um, you know, Breslin came along a little bit later, but guys who were there from the beginning, like Leonard Schechter and Leonard Coppett and Bob Libsite from the Times and Stan Isaacs, and these were writers who were really at the top of their game then. And it almost seems like they just kind of got together or came to the collective realization that this team is going to be horrible. And what's the point of writing about that? Let's find a way to make this fun, to make it interesting and focus on the personalities. And I mean, you had a guy like Lipsight who was 24 years old. He's at the very beginning of his journalism career. And they send this kid down to spring training, a guy who knew nothing about baseball, who had no memory of Stengel when he was with the Yankees. And they just basically sent him down there to write feature stories. 
And so he came up with um, just some tremendous columns, some tremendous stories. And he was really in the center of a press corps that did remarkable work. Interesting. And, and I'll tell you what, one of the things that stood out to me, writing about a team that's bad. Yeah, they were bad. But in context, they lost, I think it was a third of their games they lost or were involved in were by like one run or less. They lost a ton of one run games. So you think about yeah. a bad team, they should be getting blown out. You think of the 62 <laughs> Mets, non-competitive. That's not the case. Like that to me, as I look, I comb through baseball reference, I'm like, there's a lot of games that flip of the, you know, any bad team, you know, we saw it recently, Mets going to Cincinnati, bad team that had come back, win, you know, a couple of games and, and any bad team gets in a close game. It's nobody knows what's going to happen. This team played a lot of close games. They, it was almost like the, the old, I hate to use this Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football. Well, you're exactly right. They lost, I think something like 39 games by one run. And I can't even tell you that the, the number is out there somewhere. And I'm sure it, I must have come across this, must have reported on the book. But the, the number of games in which they lost but had the tying or winning run at the plate is just staggering. Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. One of the more fascinating things about the 62 Mets, and you can't really tell this story, and you got into it a little bit, we all know about the Dodgers and Giants moving, which is wild by today's day could you imagine the Mets moving to the west coast or the Mets and the Yankees just picking up and saying I'm done I mean it's not going to happen but it's just wild to imagine this happened these iconic Mm -hmm. franchises and then the Mets are born similar almost to how the ABA pushed the NBA to come what it became today Mm -hmm. or has become today this continental baseball league yeah the continental baseball league which never got off the ground is threatening the major leagues and the Mets are born out of it. A lot had to happen. And you mentioned about they weren't sure how they would be uh, embrace the Mets. I mean, I remember as a young kid going to Shea Stadium. There, and I don't know if this is much today, this component, although there is Dodgers and Giants fans at the games. There was still old-time Brooklyn Dodger fans coming to games, old-time New York Giant fans coming to games mm-hmm. as late as 97, 98, 99, 2000. And it would just drive me nuts. I'm like, they're gone, but they're there. <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot to layers to that part. I think that to me is almost the most fascinating part of the 62 match, which is pre 62. And I'm mm-hmm. curious your thoughts and what you learned uh, about that. Well, I think you, you're exactly right. It would be hugely traumatic if the Mets or the Yankees or both were to leave now. But if you look at it in the context of the time, it's hard for us to imagine at this great remove, how devastating the, the Dodgers and Giants leaving in 57 really was. There were a lot fewer entertainment options then. And baseball Absolutely. was a lot more important. Baseball, along with you know horse racing and boxing, those were the number one attractions, number one entertainment options in, in America at that time. And at that point, you, you know, you're coming off an era, the 10 years after World War II, where the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees, some combination of them is in the World Series every year, every single year. I think uh, 1948 was the last time before the, the Dodgers and Giants left that no New York team was in the World Series. So the Yankees were there almost every year, and they were almost always playing either the Dodgers or the Giants. And people in New York at that time, you know, they build their personalities 
they build their social lives, they build their social groupings on their baseball team. And, you know, it's not a cliche to say that people would sit around on the stoop and argue about who had the better center fielder. Right. You know, and it's, and it's during a time when you can't even watch your Dodgers in LA on the MLB TV app. You have nothing. Right. They're gone. There's no radio. You got to wait for not even the newspaper the next morning, like the late edition to find out what they did. It's, it's, it's really a, a wild thing. And then all these things have to happen with the, uh, the continental baseball league to even get the Mets into consideration, mm-hmm. which is a wild thing too, because you have the Yankees and I guess in a lot of ways they felt, well, they have the Yankees. They have this iconic franchise. They have the best of the best. Do they really need another team in the national league in New York? And there was still some, uh, I don't know about in today's game as the leagues have become muddied and blended probably wouldn't even be thought of today. It wouldn't be thought of necessarily having to have another New York team because the leagues are not like back then, but there was still this separation where it was almost two different sports in the American league and the national, yeah, not because of the DH because of, just style of play and team building and fanship and stuff like that. Yeah. There really just isn't that much difference between the two leagues anymore. And to a certain extent, there really wasn't then either, but the fact that you have the national league over here, you have the American league over here and they never ever meet except in the world series. And that really kind of made the, the separateness, the separate identity of the two leagues, much more of a, you know, of an urgent thing then. What's interesting is I always tell people that even though the Mets are born out of the Giants and the Dodgers, I feel like they have the Brooklyn Dodger DNA in them more. So mm-hmm. I almost wish they played in Ebbets Field. And, you know, I grew up in Bensonhurst, <laughs> Brooklyn. I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Uh, you know, so I understand the Brooklyn concept. And Brooklyn's a lot different now. And they're trying to recreate that neighborhood. It's different. It's not like it was in the 50s, for sure. But the Polo Grounds is an interesting baseball ballpark. The whole crazy dimensions, the, mm-hmm. the cavernous center field, walking out through center field. Talk about the Polo Grounds. What did you, I find that that's another part, which I think as you, I'm imagining you do in this project, learning about that ballpark and playing in that ballpark, uh, wacky place, really. Oh, yeah. The, the ballpark really had a huge impact on the Mets' fortunes the first couple of years that they played there. And yeah, I mean, it's well known among old time baseball fans, the fact that the the left and right field porches were so short, you know, you could hit a 260 or a 280 foot home run, uh, 260 into the, into the upper deck overhang. And, mm. and then it's, you know, 400. Could you imagine Pete Alonzo with those <laughs> pop up coming out, you know? <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned Pete Alonzo because, you know, there it's, it's pretty widely regarded now that um, now let me take a step back here. So Babe Ruth, 1919, his last year with the Red Sox, he hits the 29 home runs. And at the first year he was with the Yankees, he hits, you know, 50-something home runs. And he goes crazy the next couple of years. He was in the polo grounds then. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's when the Giants and the Yankees shared the polo grounds because Yankee Stadium was being built. And a lot of people think that the original dimensions of Yankee Stadium were modeled to some extent after the polo grounds because they saw what Ruth had been able to do there. Interesting. Never, never thought truly, about that. 
Well, just to, to truly answer your question, the it, you're right. It had ridiculously short porches. It had a cavernous center field. But one of the things that was odd about when the Mets finally got hold of it is they had to put a new scoreboard in and they put a big modern scoreboard, which had not been there when the Giants left at the end of 57. And the only place they could put it was that it was basically overhanging into the field of play. And any ball that hit the scoreboard was was a home run. So there were numerous times in that in the first couple of years where a Met fielder is going to be drifting back after a fly ball, drifting yeah. back, bang, it hits the scoreboard and it's a and home run. Like, Look at that. <laughs> Think about how many, I mean, in today, with you no, know, the, the ball has been deadened a bit, but with today, at one point with the live ball, think about that. Uh, Dave Baghdad, uh, uh, a year in Mudville, 1962 Mets. I think it's it's fascinating that you could go back and look at history. And I think to be a Mets fan, especially as we get further and further into the team history, they're not a young team anymore. Younger fans can really appreciate where this team came from. And I think understanding history is important. Now, as much as the Mets are made fun of for a mediocrity in 1962, uh, there's a lot of things they got right. They've always had from day one, and they've been blessed with great announcers. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy. Uh, They have the mascot. Mr. Met maybe doesn't look the same. Alive and well. Mets was supposed to be Metropolitans. It works. It's let's go Mets. It works. The uniform kind of works. You know, I know there's been some iterations over the years. Um, The Meet the Mets song, which I use on Mm -hmm. this program. It works. It's a... it's it's interesting how a team that's known for mediocrity and not championships has done so much right. And maybe they haven't marketed all that well in different parts of their history. I think they'll hopefully get it better, but they've got some really good bones. And look, Alex Rodriguez recently was on a podcast saying the Mets are one of the six or seven or eight uh, iconic teams in baseball. Think about that. Two championships. Mm-hmm. A-Rod, whether you like them or not, a businessman is saying, I wanted to mm-hmm. buy them because they're iconic. Absolutely. Like the Cubs, you know, so it's interesting. They've got a lot right that people don't talk about. Well, they did, but I let's take a step back from one. I want to pick on one little thread that you just offered there. Mr. Met, absolutely an iconic mascot. No question about it. But Mr. Met was not there the first season. Ah. The first year they had a different mascot. That mascot was Homer, the Beagle. The Beagle, Homer the Beagle. They've also had the Homer. Mule. I remember the, you know, Devin Gordon and I talked about the Mule, right? Metal mm-hmm. the Mule. So they, Mr. Met had, I, that's a good point. Mr. Met wasn't there. It came about. And Mr. Met had a divorce for a while. Mm-hmm. From, and I don't think Mr. Met was around in the 80s during the 80s run. I think Mr. Met came back uh, post 92, 93, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's when they started bringing him back out. So that's interesting because people think, myself included, Mr. Met's part of the initial thing. He's not. And well, he uh, was designed. He, he was designed. He was conceived and designed during that first year, but he actually did not make his debut until the famous uh, 23 inning game in 1964, the doubleheader. Um, that, but Homer was the, the initial mascot, the first couple of seasons. He was uh, a beagle. He was. Um, he lived in luxury at the Waldorf, Waldorf Astoria. He was trained by the same gentleman who trained Lassie. <laughs> and his big stunt, they, they had him do something. The, the announcers loved him, and the announcers made reference to him all the time. And he would bark on command, and he would hold a little Mets pennant 
in his teeth and a little Mets hat on his head. But his big stunt was to have been that he was going to run the bases at the polo grounds. And he was trained for months in secrecy. And so in 1963, on Rheingold Day, they brought him out there. And, you know, the place is full. Everybody's losing their minds. And Homer starts out at home plate, runs to first base, turns on a dime, runs for second base. Everybody's cheering. And then he just takes off on a mission of his own. Ran all over the infield. It took uh, three crew members and six ball players to run him down. That's great. So That's he was sort of a... the Marv Throneberry of his era. He was the Marv Throneberry of that. The poor dog gets trained, and then you know what? He just got too excited, too much, too much when the pressure's on, and he goes out there. Dave Baghdad, a year in Mudville, great stuff. A um, couple of quick things here as uh, as we wrap up. So, uh, is there a favorite player? Uh, a favorite? story that you take away uh something you learned a couple i guess it's a two-part question is there something that really you take away from the 62 minutes and what did you learn because i always think going into a project like this there's got to be something that you say hey man that's a wow i never would have thought that well as far as favorite players i would have to go with two of the the gentlemen whom i actually got to speak and that would be rod keneal the ever-present utility man, the man who played every position except pitcher and catcher and didn't play any of them particularly well. And Jay Hook, the pitcher who won, who recorded the first Met victory. And lost 19 games. Thanks and a lot lost to lose 19, 19 games. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Did you, learn, the, did you learn something different that you didn't expect from those guys? I think that there was one of the things that, that really struck me, and I heard this from Jay directly and indirectly from a number of the other players, is that they were involved in a season that was horrendous in every possible respect. And yet every day they got up, they went out, and they said, this is a new day. You know, in football, you lose badly. You have to wait a week before you can do anything about it. But in baseball, it's a game every day. So Whatever happened yesterday, forget about it. Just get up, go do your best, and maybe we'll win today. And I think it's just a great, great lesson, you know, for life, for anybody in any yep. field. Absolutely. And, and you know what? You look at this. I mean, the one thing that stands out to me, and I'm sure to you as well, I mean, Richie Ashburn, uh, what a great year. More walks mm-hmm. and strikeouts, all-star. I mean, that's a legit good player, Hall of Famer. It was not on the, the good side of his career uh, post-Phillies. Um, you know, we talk about uh, Frank Thomas, but Richie Asper had a darn good year. He really did. If he had had enough plate appearances to qualify, he would have led the league in on-base percentage. Yep. Old, you know, really a, a, an analytics. You talk about analytics today, mm-hmm. uh, an analytics player. So, Dave, you, where can they get your book, your website? You now, here we are. We have Old Timers Day coming up in about a month. I'll be there. Um, you'll be there. You'll be I there. Be so there. somebody go see that. Um, you know, obviously this is a great work. This, this should be more talk about the 62 Mets. I know the Mets are trying to improve their history, uh, led by one of their former stars, Mike Piazza. Uh, I'm going to champion as I continue my small, humble little pie part of the Mets universe. Say, hey, we need to do more. Where can they find your book? I think you could be a part of some of this stuff and uh, give the listeners an idea of everything about, your project a year in Mudville that they need to know to get involved and read and buy it and maybe even contact you. 
yeah, if I could be a part of that, it would be my honor to do that. I have a website. The book is called A Year in Mudville, The Full Story of Casey Stengel and the Original Mets Revised Edition. It's important to get the revised edition. The website is ayearinmudville.com, just the way it sounds. And they can reach me via email through that uh, site. They can buy the book there. They can buy the book in paperback and as a Kindle at Amazon. It's available at Amazon Prime. If they have an e-reader other than a Kindle or they just want to buy a PDF, they can do that either through my site or through a site called smashwords.com, which is a great hub for ebooks of all kinds. The hardcover edition and the audiobook edition are in progress. And those will be got to get it the audiobook. Are you going to do the audiobook? Will we hear your voice? You will. Wow. Now that I got to tell you, I do a, <laughs> a, an hour a week on the radio and I extemporaneously talk and I bungle the human language. People send me emails. You know, you mispronounce this. Your accent came out there. Is it a Brooklyn accent? It is a Long Island accent. I said it's both because I grew up in Brooklyn, but I've been on Long Island almost 20 years. So it's a combination. So I, if you get that pulled off that audiobook, you got to tell me how you did it. Because reading a book that's what, 500 pages for an audiobook, that's yeoman's work, my friend. You got to give me that whole thing. That's well, you're I, probably looking I, forward to that. I'm I'm looking forward to having it done. I'll tell you that. That's for sure. Um, I actually have a couple of radio shows, a couple of music shows. So I record in the morning when I have more of a radio voice as opposed right. to the, the squeak that you're hearing now. Yeah, but, um, I hear you on that. Well, yeah. I'm the opposite. I have the squeak in the morning when I wake up and I got all the energy at night. So I'm trying to figure <laughs> out when I should record all these things. So, David, this has been great. I, I love to have you on again. I love to talk Mets baseball. Um, love catching up with you. Uh, let's do this again. Thank you so much and uh, good luck and, and we'll be watching and, and let's keep talking about Mets history and specifically the 62 Mets. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Mike. This has been a lot All of right. fun. That's David Baghdad, a year in Mudville. I thought it'd be interesting. Let's talk a little bit. You know, we, when you're in season and you're talking about a team that's competitive, like the Mets are, and we're you're entering here at the all-star break, uh, you got to, we love doing history here. And we always say we learn from history to be able to understand what's going on today. And I truly believe that in all aspects of life, history, politics, and sports is no different. And David did a great job uh, in outlining really how the Mets were born. And I think it's important for us to look at how the Mets were born and where we got, because there's that yoke around the neck. There's that, that, that accident, the yoke around the neck, and it starts in 62. And there's a lot of things that started there that still exist today. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The stories from the 1986 Mets are legendary and never get old. One that always comes to mind is how Houston pitcher Mike Scott mastered them during the NLCS. Did he scuff the ball? Did a ball exist? The answer is yes. And Nick Davis director of the ESPN 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, shared how Ed Hearn gave him the proof on the Talking Mets podcast. You know, when I first contacted him, because I had read that there was a sock of balls that he still had, and um, I, you know, he, he was like, yeah, sure, I got them right here, and then, you know, he calls me two days later, I can't find the balls. Where, I don't know where <laughs> the balls are. And so it was like a real thing for a couple of months, and then he, his parents, they were in Florida, and so they had to be shipped from Florida to where we were going to interview him in Kansas City, and it was a real, uh, it was a real thing, and the end was very funny about, oh, you only want me, can I make this joke? You only want me for my ball. <laughs> Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com.
All right, we're back. Final thoughts, great stuff. And uh, I, look, I know that sometimes I see it, especially with some of the younger fans of the audience, when you say, hey, you know, listen to this segment with a great author like David Baghdad, and uh, it's about the 62 Mets. It's like, oh, Mike, I'm tired of hearing about it. But if you're really going to understand this team and appreciate this team and appreciate the show, we're always connecting history. We're always talking about uh, the current team. But it's a, it's, it's a, I've always said it's almost like a Mets variety show. You never know who's going to show up. And you never know what we're going to talk about. You never know what, what non sequiturs I'm going to get into, whether it be a 90s Knicks reference, some, you know, baseball movies, maybe a, a story about getting into a car accident and how I couldn't, I missed the ninth inning of that big win in, in uh, Philadelphia earlier in the year. You never know. So that's part of it. I do know that the trade deadline used to be, especially. You know, with the advent of the blogosphere, I mean, got to give a guy like Matt Cerrone, who's another innovator. I talked about Mark Healy and Gotham Baseball. Uh, Mark, you know, Matt Cerrone, ref- you know, we always used to refresh Mets blog. I mean, some of the younger fans in the audience probably know Mets blog more as SNY.TV when Matt got out of that whole game. But before Twitter and even before MLB trade rumors, when MLB, MLB trade rumors wasn't really around, I think, till like 07-ish around there, Mets blog was where you'd go. And you would refresh it over and over. Times like the July 31st, the old trade deadline, or throughout the offseason. I remember refreshing it and looking at forums. Forums used to be a big thing. The Mets Online Fan Forum used to be a big one. I used to go all these forums to see, you know, what are you hearing about Carlos Beltran and where he will sign? Because you didn't have access to the Houston Chronicle or the access to Twitter and and the beat writers and rumors like you do now. So... You would try to go to all these different forums, an Astros forum, an MLB forum. The, but the, the two places I used to go at times of the year, like now, would be Mets Online Fan Forum and then Mets Blog and then, of course, MLB Trade Rumors. And then when Twitter came around, a guy like John Heyman, you know, they started to knock it out of the park and, and that's where it goes. So I'm not like that anymore. I mean, I check. I have my lists I set up in Twitter. Obviously, I've told you I believe Andy Martino's the guy that's been the closest in on the Mets mindset, you know, he's the one that came out today and say, look, they're asking for a lot for Wilson Contreras. I mean, when you're asking for top five prospects and major league player and maybe cash or another prospect for guys like J.D. Martinez, maybe Wilson Contreras, and you're trying to, you know, they have to you give more to get a guy like David Robertson. I mean, what's so aggravating again, it goes back and, it, and it's part of the whole chaotic offseason the Mets have had for a couple of years now is that these guys like Vogelback and Robertson could have been had just for money off the you know, value-driven part of the free agent. I don't want to say scrap heap, but maybe scrap heap is the way. We call it the scrap heap. Add it to the bingo card. Component Mets, scrap heap. I mean, there's so many things. Look, that bingo card that our friend that follows us, Senator Clay Davis, is his moniker on Twitter. Um, I mean, let me tell you, Senator. here's a non sequitur. Senator Clay Davis in The Wire was a politician that was a parody but he was a politician that was years ahead of his time because a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle are like Senator Clay Davis in that show, The Wire. So if you haven't watched The Wire, go watch it because it'll get you. You know, it's a it's a it's a sad series at times, but it's a it's a it's a great series at the same time. But back to the point, um, a lot of bingo card you could put out there. And uh, I won't be refreshing MLB trade rumors 52 times. And what do I expect? What would I like to see? I'd like to see the Mets get David Robertson. That's what I'd like to see. That's the name I really think 
would make the bullpen strong. Even if they didn't get another reliever, I think if you got David Robertson uh, with Trevor May coming back and with Nagosik and maybe Zapucky and they could, you know, the improvements that Lugo has made and Tommy Hunter could give you some innings when, you know, you need a big out earlier in the game. And, you know, Adovino continues to be very strong. I mean, even Juan Lopez, I mean, I don't trust him, but he has good stuff. You know, he really does. So um, I can live with that. And then if you want to go component with a right-handed bat, or if you want to go Mark Vientos and keep J.D. Davis around, I like J.D. Davis. Uh, you know, I um, I think he, he – the unfortunate thing about J.D. is that he hit really well when he was playing the field, and I think that his he hasn't embraced or figured out how to be a DH, which is like being a pinch hitter four uh, times a game. And he's talked about that. And the problem is he's not good enough defensively anywhere to warrant an everyday spot on this team. Left field, no. Third base, no. I mean, he made, if he gets traded in the next day and a half, he still, if they win a ring, he still deserves a ring. You know why? He made that big play in Chicago. He's had some uh, nice hits. Anybody that contributes to this team, whether they're going to be here at the end, when, if and when they hit the top of the mountain or not, deserves a ring or deserves, it's all those guys, deserves, you know, kudos. It's all these guys throughout the story, throughout the season, throughout the narrative, as you go along the yellow brick road that may just come in and out for a moment, but still have an impact and deserve to be recognized. And let me tell you, we do that on this show. So, so anyway, that's it. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed David Baghdad. And I really appreciate him coming on to talk about a year in Mudville, the revised edition, the full story of Casey Stengel and the original Mets. Great book. Had a chance to read it. Uh, you really should read in to the Continental Baseball League and how that had a big impact on expansion and the Mets coming into existence. Uh, there's a there's a great book about that. We may get into that at some point. That seems like more of an off-season thing. Um, I, I may look into that because I think that it's important for us to appreciate and know how the Mets got here, why the Mets got here, and how we all became fans of this team. And I cover this team. I'm a fan of this team, but I cover this team, so I don't want to make it seem like I'm a, I'm a fanboy with a hat on over here in my studio. Uh, but the reason we're here talking about this team and not talking about the Yankees or the Brooklyn Dodgers or the New York Giants, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think appreciating that and getting away from the grind, which is harder when you're following a team in the pennant race and at the trade deadline, um, you know, that's that's something that uh, I think is important. So, you know, we'll continue to do that. So anyway, buckle up. Hope everybody enjoyed the show. It'll be a wild and wacky, uh, oh, 48 hours or so. And I'm sure I'm going to be coming to you in the next couple of days with some news or maybe not or some perspective. At the very least, we got Jacob DeGrom on Tuesday. So sit tight. I expect a special edition of the show within the next two days. And uh, away we go. All right, that's it. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. You can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the trade deadline drama. Next 48 hours should be wild. Till then, take care, everybody. For the park and greet the Mets Hot dogs, green grass, all out of shade Guaranteed to have a happy
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.